see if there are any questions or comments about uh, your experience practicing tonight or your experience practicing at home or any general questions about the practice. Mm -hmm. So open it up. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. That was awesome. I needed that. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the last time it was so quiet. Mm -hmm. It was great. Yeah, great. Great. I see everybody nodding to that. So for some time now, since the beginning of the year, I've been taking on the uh, routine of talking about the core teachings of the Buddha each Sunday and the way that the Buddha outlined the practices is in the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And so we've been making our way through that framework and we've been talking about most recently, the ethical practices of the Dharma. At the base, the Buddha's practices are an encouragement to live in a way that brings forth the liberation of the heart and the mind for oneself and for all beings. The basis of ethics in Buddhist practice is that of non-harming. Harm is a situational a very nuanced thing. I wanted to read uh, something I feel a little bit weird about it because I wrote it, but it helped me to uh, put my thoughts on Buddhist ethics together a little bit. So this is called Buddhist Ethics for the Western Mind. <coughs> In considering how to best understand and then apply the ethical practices of the Buddha's Eightfold Path, which we're talking about in particular wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood, which are three of the path factors. Within our modern world, it's important to first consider the lens in which we relate to ethics in the West, specifically as it relates to the far-reaching influence of how ethics has been passed down through Western structures of religion and justice. Christian ideology has largely influenced our spiritual orientation to ethics in the West, uh, most commonly in the form of commandments, which we call legalist ethics, which presupposes a ruling of righteousness or sinfulness in the eyes of a divine judge or a doctrine. Also, the Western moral basis for criminal justice and our criminal justice system maintains a similar frame of legalist ethics, whereas behavior is deemed either punishable or passable in the eyes of a judge. Because of this largely Judeo-Christian frame, Westerners will often approach Buddhist ethical practices with this same bias, having tendencies towards, one, the evaluation of personal pro progress, or looking at practice as a self-improvement strategy, analyzing what's right and what's wrong, and seeking authority to validate correctness or divine judgment. In order to begin an exploration of Buddhist ethics, we must make conscious the reality that despite our current religious beliefs or upbringing, or lack thereof, 
We live and interact within a culture that upholds an understanding that there exists a judge and or doctrine that determines right and wrong in the realm of spirit and justice. We can also consider that there are both conventional and post-conventional ways of relating to morality and ethical principles. So I want to stop here. There is a psychologist named Kohlberg who looked at how we develop morality over time. And he said that when we are younger, we have a conventional way of looking at morality, right and wrong. We tend to say what's right and wrong and to act based upon what's right and wrong because we will either get punished or we'll get rewarded. And that this is a very natural, normal, and important part of our lived experience because we have to have laws and we have to have ways of governing big groups of people. So even the sense that we have right and wrong is not right or wrong. It's just how it is. But there's also a way to practice growth and moral development, Kohlberg says, which is the development of a post-conventional frame of morality, which is situational. He said that post-conventional moral development, which is, I think, what we're talking about with, with Buddhist ethics, is marked by three things. One, an understanding that rules are useful but changeable mechanisms. So rules are important, and laws are important, and these things are important, and they also change. An acceptance of an ability for differing views to coexist at the same time that truths are relative, and some truths are maybe universal, right? And we have relative truths, and we have universal truths. And three, moral reasoning is based on abstract reasoning using universal ethical principles. And so what this means to me is that determining what is causing harm and what's not is an abstract venture. And the most important thing in Buddhist practice is not knowing what's good or bad or right or wrong, but instead knowing, having the ability to ask the questions. Buddhism's more about asking questions than having answers, right? And looking at our intentions and our motivations behind our actions. If we're truly honest and we can make our intentions more and more conscious, the understanding is that we will at least attempt to act in a way that causes less harm that's a good thing. And being alive, we will cause harm. And there are some universal ethical principles. In Buddhist practice, the universal ethical principles are the development of this quality of metta, which is the worldview that all beings desire freedom and well-being, safety and security, and that we should do our best to work towards that goal, regardless of whether we can attain it or not. The quality of compassion, or karuna, which is the willingness to turn towards what's painful, to be open to and to embrace what is difficult, stressful, challenging in both ourselves and others. And the wish for all beings to be free from suffering, despite this being possible or not. And then the development of appreciative joy. As much of a bummer as Buddhism can be sometimes, focusing a lot on the challenging part of our experience, Buddhist practice is about 
being able to be fully present and to have what one meditation teacher, Shinzen Young, calls complete experiences. Being present for our lives allows us to have complete experiences, experiences beyond what's right or wrong or good or bad or all the judgments and ideas that the mind constructs, just fully present, even for joy, for pleasure. And then the development of equanimity. Equanimity is the ability to be with experiences without having to push or pull, without having to suppress or grasp after them, but to be able to, with wisdom, understand that our happiness is dependent upon how we relate to our current life experiences, not the experiences themselves. One of the things I've noticed about my life is that I constantly get into the stream of if-onlys, right? If only I had better house, if only Nashville wasn't so fucking expensive these days, if only, right, if only things could be different, then I could be happy. And then I've countlessly, time and time again, found myself inheriting new conditions that I like and having yet more conditions that if only they were here, I would be happy. And so the Buddha encouraged us to look at this, this sense of grasping after or pushing away experiences we don't like and running around trying to get things to be the way we want them to. And instead, that through with equanimity, we can be learn to be with our experience without so much pushing and pulling. When we sit in meditation and we don't scratch an itch, you know, we get an opportunity to sit with the sensation and see it rise up and see the mind yell at us and to see if we can sit with it and maybe the mind will settle and the sensation will pass and we're also welcome to scratch the itch it's not a big deal but it's a practice of equanimity and so tonight after talking about buddhist ethics and offering this refresher on what we're looking at i wanted to talk about the power and potential of sex and sexuality which is something we're not used to talking about in public spaces, and therefore we oftentimes feel very isolated uh, in our suffering around sex and sexuality. And it is a part of the Buddhist path of ethical practice. As a matter of fact, he said, if there was another energy as strong as sexuality that coexisted alongside it, that no human beings would ever be able to awaken and free themselves from suffering because it's too powerful. I think the idea here is not to be defeated by this, but instead just the humility that, yeah, sex and sexuality causes a lot of distress, suffering in our personal lives and in our macro lives. Uh, we undertake these training precepts um, and one of the precepts is undertaking the course of training and refraining from wrongdoing in respect to sexuality or sexual misconduct but what the word actually means is sensuality not sexuality and so sexuality at its base is sensory desire. It's an expression of sensual desire, just as we may, through our senses, look for food or look for pleasure, or we like a massage, we like to go sit in the jacuzzi. We like all of these things because they feel good. Uh, Sex is an expression of sensual desire. 
And so what the Buddha is encouraging here is, yeah, to look at our sexual behavior, but also more deeply to investigate and look at how we interact with uh, sensual desire. So the power of sex, I want to talk about the urge of sensuality. Uh, We are wired as human beings to go after what's comfortable and avoid what's painful. It's just a part of the mechanisms, part of the setup of the system. So we have dopamine and norepinephrine centers of the brain, and when we take in something through our senses that is uh, activating those centers, we get a big payoff and a reward. And in the short term, this is a really effective and wonderful way to manage stress and to feel better is to just eat a pint of Ben and Jerry's, to smoke a little weed, to have a little sex, and to do all the things that we love to do because they feel good. And the Buddha's opinion about this is not that you're right or wrong for having this tendency, but that we want to be careful because, as we know, these things oftentimes cause us to feel like shit, and so we want to look at them. Um... So sexuality is strong as an urge, uh, and it's an expression of this sensual urge or desire. And it's in particular very powerful because sexuality is expressed through a wide range of expressions. Uh, Through romance and partnership, uh, dating, attraction, through intercourse, masturbation, through porn, through our media. Many different forms of sexuality are available. There's another really strong power of sexuality and how we're conditioned in particular in our culture in that we have this uh, disconnect. On one hand, we glorify sexuality and it's everywhere and it's commodified and it's available for our eyes a lot of you know, a lot of our, during a lot of our daily interactions. But at the same time, it is not talked about in public spaces. So we are fed constantly sexual material and romance and romance, you know, even through watching a movie. What movie doesn't have a love interest, right? Uh, some do, but not many, right? Through social media, through, you know, a lot of our day-to-day lives were being met with uh, sexual energy, but we don't talk about it. And so what this means for me is that I oftentimes feel uh, very activated sexually or had throughout my life, but completely unresourced in how to, do, how to deal with that. There's a lot of cultural conditioning around sexuality, in particular and around how we see gender and sexualized gender. And here I'm only going to talk about two genders because that is the normative uh, way that we've constructed gender in our culture. In the feminine form of gender, we've sexualized women as objects of desire. Since the beginning of time and literature, women's have, women have been... Uh, the unrequited love interest and the object of desire. There are ideals of attractiveness that go along with the woman form, body shape, features, skin tone, which have changed and evolved over time, are largely cultural, but uh, exist. Even 
As we currently exist and have existed for some time, women's sexual rights and reproductive rights have been under the control of a divine judge, as we talked about earlier, the legal system. Men, we emphasize, the masculine is that of performance, of strength, of confidence, of being right, performing, we emphasize penis size, we emphasize strength, the role of pursuer in dating. So it can feel very isolating if we don't fit into one of these two genders, and then if we don't fit into these conditions around what we expect gender, our gender, to look like. Also, we have a lot of conditioning around our formative experiences. Attachment to primary caregivers, were our caregivers present, consistent? Did they mirror emotions with us? Were they uh, inconsistent, neglectful? Uh, did we talk about sex? Did we develop coping skills? Did we discuss romance and relationships? There's a guy named Mario Martinez that talks about our primary woundings as humans, and he says that there are three primary woundings that people experience, the betrayal, shame, and abandonment. And oftentimes, if we look at our lives, where have I experienced the most forms of betrayal, shame, or abandonment? Usually it's around relationships of some form, whether it's parents or romantic interests. And then, of course... Uh, we need not leave out sexual trauma and sexual abuse, which is, uh, I'm a mental health professional, and I work with people in a variety of settings. I work at six or seven different places, and I see people individually, and uh, sexual trauma is a lot more common, I think, than most of us think, unfortunately. And so what's the potential with all of this conditioning and all of this urge? The potential of sexuality is that we can uh, bring this into our reflection and we can start to look at how we can start to untangle some of this stuff and how we can start to express sexuality in a way that does not lead to harm and suffering internally, externally, and both. Uh, what the Buddha taught about sexuality was very limited. He basically offered uh, training of not engaging in sex with minors, not engaging with, in sex with someone in a committed relationship, not engaging in sex with monastics or people that have devoted themselves to celibacy, and not having sex with beings who cannot make the decision for themselves. So this is about it that he offered. <laughs> And so this leaves a lot of room for how we express our sexual energy in the world. One of the things that I encourage and people that I work with is I encourage them to intentionally, because we're all about intention here, attention and intention are kind of the two things, uh, intentionally sit down and to write about and inventory our sexual behaviors in Buddhist psychology, our thinking is also a behavior. So looking at even how we think sexually and what we fantasize about and the people that we lust after and romanticize, not, again, as good or bad, but just to have it out in front of us, to look at it, 
to look at our sexual behaviors and to list them, I like to borrow from my friend Kate Spina. She's an Against the Stream facilitator and does a lot of work in this realm of sexuality. And she likes to have people inventory their sexual behaviors and to work on this intention of non-harming by labeling from 1 to 10 the degree of harm that it causes to yourself and others. And then to practice a harm reduction approach. We're not getting rid of sexuality, we're not suppressing sexuality, but we're trying to live with that energy more responsibly. You know, and so to be able to look at the ones that cause the most harm and to work towards finding a way to practice with those behaviors where we can let go of some of them, you know, where we can change the way that we express that energy. And to be really kind with ourselves in this process. That's another one of our intentions is metta, right? This kind awareness. So it's not fucking easy, you know? And this is the Buddha's path, is it's not easy. It's not easy to bring what we don't want to bring into our awareness. You know, but as Carl Jung says, we don't awaken by imagining figures of light. We awaken by making the darkness conscious. We have to bring the shadow part of our experiences forward and to look at them. And my experience has been is I don't do that unless I intentionally develop some support around it and some behaviors around it. I was sitting a retreat for a month with a Buddhist monk and he says, if you walk away from a corner, the corner of a room, it just gets darker. Right, And so we want to go with mindfulness as the flashlight we walk into the room with and we want to look around the whole thing. And so this inventorying can be a way to bring it forward. Other potential of sexuality is working with lustful thoughts and urges. First I want to define lust because even when I say the word lust, what comes up you know, for me... I think bad, sinful, wrong. Lust simply just means having a very strong sexual desire for someone or something. It's not bad. It's not wrong. It's just a very strong sexual desire. <laughs> but we want to be able to work with very strong desires. In Buddhism, oftentimes, you know, when if you're just doing some reading, you may have heard that desire causes suffering, attachment. But I would say that this is very misleading because desire can be, actually it's a, I believe, a neutral mental factor, the Buddha says. So it's not good or bad, right or wrong. Desire can be wholesome. There's something called chanda, which is a wholesome desire to, uh, and motivation for awakening. But strong desires can oftentimes lead us around unconsciously if we don't pay attention to them, and they can turn into craving which is the demanding the satisfaction of a desire. And lust, because it's a strong desire, oftentimes demands its satisfaction. <laughs> you know, if you have a lustful thought enter the mind and you think about it and you chew on that for a while, it's going to activate some things around here and it's going to be harder to <laughs> allow it to subside after thinking about it for some time. And so we want to look at how we work with that. The Buddha's encouragement was to practice yanaso manasakara, careful attention. Uh, not avoidance, not suppression, not grasping or clinging, but just carefully attending to what is in our experience. 
With mindfulness, we start to develop wise effort, which is something that we'll talk about in a few weeks. It's one of the factors of the Eightfold Path. How do we bring forward the energy necessary to work with lust in the mind? In some extent, we'll need to use our effort to try to prevent circumstances in which lust will overwhelm us and cause us to act with harm. So this may be, for example, for people that have sexual addictions, Maybe you don't go to the place where you normally act on your sexual addiction. So that wise effort is to prevent an unskillful state from arising through your behavior, not giving it a chance. And then there are ways of practicing wise effort that are once a state has entered the mind, how we can work to, I actually like this word, they use in the traditional literature, abandon unskillful states. And I like sometimes telling my mind, setting a very firm boundary, and just like leaving it on the side of the road, right? <laughs> Opening the door of the car and saying, get, get out. <laughs> you know, and sometimes we have to do this with the mind because it's very persistent. The mind, you know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it doesn't like to think it's wrong very often. And it doesn't like to be told what to do, right? It likes to tell you what to do. It's like, hey, we should go do this. Okay. You know, and then we start to be like, are you sure? And it's like, yeah, you should really. Okay. I did that last time and it didn't work out so well. Yeah, but, you know, this time it will be different. All right. And we usually just, but sometimes just telling the mind, not right now. You know, this is one of the skills in developing mindfulness is the ability to find, locate, and place our attention where we need it. So being able to notice where our attention has gone, and to remove our attention from that mind mind state. Uh, And to also practice developing skillful states to replace uh, these thoughts or to encourage skillful states by looking at our behavior. So maybe I have someone I check in with regularly about my romantic relationships and sexuality, And that is something that encourages maybe a state of connecting with someone, a state of feeling validated in my urges, or a state of feeling some gratitude or appreciation for having some transparency. And then we want to maintain these states. So this is another aspect of wise effort, is maintaining and practicing maintenance. Another way to work with lustful thoughts is to use the same parameters we use when we're talking about wise speech. So one of the things that we undertake, the trainings around wise speech, is what I'm about to speak, true, useful, timely, and kind. So is thinking, having this lustful thought, here we're talking about not just urges, sensations in the body, but we're talking about active thought, fantasy, This can even be like I want to call my ex or maybe I should get back back together, right? Because sexuality expresses itself in more than just the act. So around these thoughts of romance or these thoughts that aren't going to lead us in a great place, we can sometimes ask ourselves, is this something that's true? So is it true and is it useful? Is this going to actually happen, right? Is it worth thinking about having sex with someone at the gym if it's not going to happen, right? Is it worth the frustration of, you know, running that through the mind? 
And for me, I've practiced periods of celibacy, and this has been really helpful for dealing and working with sexual urge, is that I have to be careful about, during, especially during those periods of time, what we let in. You know, so, okay, is this true? Is this useful? Yeah, this isn't going to happen. It's not useful. Also, is thinking about, you know, lusting after something, is it timely? Thinking about sex right before I walk into a job interview is not the best time to do that, right? And then also, if we're lay practitioners, we're not monks, I don't see any robes in here, so we want to engage healthily in sex if we have a partner. So it may be timely before we have sex with our partner to think about sex with them, right? So that can be a skillful use of sexuality. Uh, And is it kind? You know, is it uh, act? Is it a thought that is in agreement with this kind of ethical view that all beings want safety and security? Not to judge a thought, We have violent, weird, screwed-up thoughts. Not your fault. All of us have them. You know, uh, Noah Levine, the guy who started Against the Stream, he said that his dad used to say, if we had a machine that could uh, cast your thoughts to the whole room right now, how many of us would sign up to do that, right? How many of us would want each other to see what we think about? Because we have weird thoughts. (laughs) So it's not about judging our thoughts, but it's about kind of checking that and being like, oh, you know, that's not really something that's kind of, you know, harsh or that's hurtful to myself or others. Uh, working with urges and thoughts, I'm going to give you a more extreme example. The Buddha encourages uh, if we just can't stop thinking about someone or something, and in particular around sexual desire, like wanting to have sex or fulfill a sexual urge, to practice body contemplation. And it's kind of funny, but it's actually helped me out. Uh, One thing that happens oftentimes when you go on silent meditation retreat is the mind gets so bored that it starts to sexualize people and fantasize about everything, right? And so... Uh, Body contemplation is a way to look at the body that's more in line with reality to help to take care of this. So this is what he said. I'm going to read it because it's hilarious. (laughs) Uh, He uses male pronouns here. I'm just going to keep it because it's a little bit lengthy. Again, monks, he reviews this same body up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the hair, enclosed by skin, as full of many kinds of impurity thus. In this body, there are head hairs, body hairs, nails, uh, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, bowels, mesentery, contents of the stomach, feces, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, spittle, snot, oil, the joints, and urine. Just as though there were a bag with an opening at both ends full of many sorts of grain, such as hill rice, red beans, or red rice, beans, peas, and millet, and white rice, a man with good eyes and a man with good eyes were to open that bag and review it. This is hill rice, this is red rice, these are beans, these are peas, this is millet, this is white rice. So too he reviews the same body. 
right? So reviewing the body as it is in actuality can be really helpful, you know? It is because what we lust after is an idea of something. You know, what we lust after is an experience. It's, it's what the mind signifies it to mean. I don't suggest you do that if you're attempting to have sex with your partner right beforehand. <clears throat> so lastly, I want to talk about the potential sexuality and working with urges. Uh, so we've talked about some ways working with lust and the mental states and the mental content of lust and also working with physical urges. Now I'm going to read something that my friend Kate Spina who I look to a lot for this type of material. She has a lot of wisdom in this area. Uh, Something that she wrote about sex. She says, Sex is a powerful energy, and we are in a culture that both glorifies sex and is still not open to talking about it. So it can feel super powerful, and we may not feel we have the capacity needed to cope with such an energy, so we let it lead us around. But luckily, many of us have a meditation practice. As I practice more and more, I've been able to see sexual energy as just energy. Yes, it's powerful, but it's not unmanageable. Just like I've learned when I'm meditating to not scratch an itch in the middle of my sit, I've also learned I don't need to act on every sexual impulse that arises. And so in practice, in the development of equanimity or this ability to be with experience without pushing or pulling, we develop something I like to call the practice of urge surfing, right? So the ability to ride the waves of energy, you know? And when I talk about energy, I don't mean metaphysical and I don't mean energy we can't see or experience. I mean the energetic sense of how we experience emotions and urges in the body. We do and we practice urge surfing with development of three qualities in mindfulness and one is focus or concentration. The ability to bring our attention to an object of focus and to have the ability to do that and to pay attention to what's relevant in any given experience. So the more that we practice mindfulness breathing, for example, we're able to break the addiction to the mind for a moment to get a little bit of a break. Now, the goal of mindfulness is not to get rid of the mind, but maybe in the beginning to get a little bit of some space from it, right? So with urges, what we can do is we can use the concentration ability to pull our attention away from uh, the source. Or we can bring our attention to the sexual urge and investigate it. And then we're developing also sensory clarity. Sensory clarity means that we are able to investigate our direct experience, so as we attend to and tune into the urge, we can see directly the experience as well as the underlying causes and the triggers for the urge. You know, what was happening? What was I thinking about before this happened? You know, if I wasn't feeling sexual desire right now, what would I have to feel? You know, or maybe it's just I saw someone hot. And now I'm thinking about this and I'm going to stop or I'm going to continue, you know. But practicing looking at our direct experience, how is it, what led to it. We can start to investigate things like loneliness and boredom and how the mind relates to those things. Fantasy, 
uh, and anticipation. So focus, the ability to locate our attention and place it on an object that's relevant, helps us to either back off of a sexual urge or to bear down to look at it. Sensory clarity, we can look at the urge and we can see the causes and conditions that may have generated it. And the development of equanimity, which we've talked about, which is the ability to open to the experience without having to grasp or suppress the urge nor judge the mental activity that generated it. So it's really important, and I'm going to say that again, equanimity in this case is the ability to open to the experience without having to grasp or suppress the urge nor judge the mental activity that generated it. So we're not going in to judge what we're thinking about or analyzing or getting this whole committee of lawyers to evaluate the situation. We're simply being with the experience without suppressing it or grasping after it, allowing the urge to come and go. And just like an itch in meditation, it will arise, it will pass, it will arise again, it will pass. But over time, being able to urge surf in this way or to be with an experience allows you to be able to develop more distress tolerance and more of a capacity to hold this type of energy in the body. So I think the question for our reflection is, are we willing and interested to bring sexuality into spiritual practice, if you consider this spiritual practice? Uh, religious communities, this is my uh, uh, sales pitch for the reason why you should bring it into spiritual practice. It's because religious communities have been at the center of sexual abuse largely due to a lack of ethical structure and overall suppression of discussing the intersection of working with sexuality and spiritual practice. So, you know, harm, much harm is caused. And against the stream, we have an ethical basis for sexuality. Teachers, me here, I'm married also, and I can't have romantic relationships with anyone that I meet here. You know, we have this in place because the dynamic of having someone become a teacher and the projections that we often place on one another uh, can oftentimes lead to these relationships are incredibly harmful. And this has happened in Buddhist communities, many. And this has happened in uh, the Catholic Church many times. And this has happened in, you know, many communities of religions. And I think it's because we don't develop ethical structures for it and we don't talk about it. So uh, I want to open it up as comfortable or uncomfortable as it may be just to hear questions, comments, thoughts. You know, uh, two guidelines around sharing. Maybe one is to share personally. So if someone else shares, don't share it anyone else. Maybe just talk from your own experience what's relevant to you. Secondly, uh, you know, just reflect what's true, useful, timely, kind to yourself and others. Looking at oversharing around this or, you know, for some of us, if we tend to be quiet, maybe undersharing. So uh, whatever feels right and we'll open it up. Thank you. Thank you.